Hi. Welcome to Season 1, Episode 12 of Diversity in the D. Today we have the case of Gregory Green. Gregory Green was born on December 10, 1966. His family was religious. He had a pretty good upbringing. When he was in his early 20s, he got married to a girl named Tanya Clayton Green. She had two, two children from her previous relationships, and in 1991, Tanya found out she was pregnant. But within six months, Greg's demeanor started to change. He was becoming very jealous, controlling, and very violent. Tanya talked to her, one of her friends, telling her everything that was going on with Greg. She didn't know if he was doing drugs, but one day, he just switched his whole demeanor. Tanya finally had enough of Greg and decided it was time to leave and get out of the relationship. She was going to go to church and pray, then go back home and pack her bags and leave. When Tanya returned home, she found Greg waiting for her. He was furious. He either could sense she was leaving or maybe Tanya had mentioned it, but this led up to Greg stabbing Tanya numerous times, which ended up killing both Tanya and their unborn child. While this attack was taking place, Tanya's two other children were hiding in the closet. After Greg was done, he picked up the phone and called 911 and told the dispatcher what he had done. Officers arrived on the scene shortly and arrested Greg. He played at no contest, second degree murder in 1992. He said he had no control over his actions and tried to plead insanity. So, of course. He was gave a psych evaluation, and he was found mentally competent. Greg was convicted, and they gave him a 15 to 25 year sentence in 1992. His mother wrote to the judge saying she did not believe her son was a threat to society, and that she did not believe a long sentence would make him any better because he was he had suffered already, and would continue to suffer the rest of his life. Shaking my head. Greg tried to get out on parole five times. He failed the first four times, two times in 2004, and two times in 2006. In these parole hearings, he often blamed Tanya for her own death and said it was all her fault. He also blamed his actions on immaturity from his past. The parole board scene, he showed lack of empathy and no remorse, but he had a big support system. Behind him, his sister wrote in 2006, that Greg has become closer to the Lord and reads his words daily. She believes, she believes this is what helps Greg through this difficult trying time. One of Greg's biggest supporters was a pastor from Detroit. He was an old friend of Greg's and was helping him get out and find the Lord. Fred, Fred Harnes, the pastor, wrote to the parole board on August 17, 2005 saying, Dear Blank, this is a letter of support for Gregory Green. Gregory and I were friends before his mishap, and he was incarcerated. He was a member of our church. I am offering the help, as well as myself, in any way we can be of service to Gregory. I feel he has paid for his unfortunate lack of self-control, and the damage he has caused, as much as possible, and is sorry. This will not restore the lives that were taken. He will carry that with him for the rest of his life. We are hoping to assist Gregory and now given to life and helping those in church, work in USA, and other countries. 
Hopefully this can pay back a portion of that which was taken. If there are any questions, don't hesitate to contact me. Signed Apostle Fred Harris. God bless. Then he wrote to the parole board again on November 27, 2006. This time he said, Dear parole board, I greet you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I'm writing this letter in support for Gregory Green. I understand he is being considered for parole. Gregory was attending our church before he was sentenced to prison. He was very faithful attendance-wise, showed a great interest in the Lord, and was very helpful. Over the, over the years, and some of my members have communicated with Gregory. I through visits as well as letters, occasionally and others through mail. Our ministry deals with correcting behavior disorders by understanding their origin, how we have been affected by them and what we must do to change them. This procedure is called inner healing and deliverance. With this technique in mind, while interacting with Gregory, I've noticed a great deal of growth in his understanding has matured quite a bit as well as his processing skills. If he was able to be released, he would be welcomed as part of our church community and whatever we could do to help him adjust, we would, signed Apostle Fred Harris. Greg was a model prisoner. He kept his head down and followed the rules. He only had one fight which was minor. He didn't get into any involvement with violence or no arguments with guards. So in 2008, after serving 16 years, Gregory Green was released on parole. What a bullcrap sentence for killing your wife and unborn child. His parole lasted only two years. He would check in with his parole officer. He, he stayed with his mom and stayed to himself. After he was done with his parole, he was a free man. Pastor Fred Harris had a daughter named Faith Harris. She met Greg and believed he was a changed man. She had two children from a previous relationship she was in. She had a little boy named Chani Allen Jr. and a girl named Kayara Allen. Her and Greg got together after he was off of parole and immediately got married in December of 2010. In a two-year span, they would have two kids, a girl named Koi and a girl named Kaylee. Everything was going great. Three years into the marriage, Greg started with his controlling, violent, jealous ways again. Just out of the blue. Faith had enough of his ways and went and filed for a restraining order. And when filing out, filling out the application, she put, We are filling, filing for a divorce. He's being belligerent, kicking things. He kicked the couch while the baby was sleeping on it. Just kicking things. Threatening me, saying if I don't leave, things are going to get ugly. He jumped at me like he was going to attack. This went on for hours, but unfortunately her restraining order was denied for insufficient evidence. So really what the fuck? They needed evidence when he was locked up for the murder of his first wife? I bet the pastor was speaking so highly about Greg now. In 2013, Faith filed for a divorce, but the paperwork never went through for the divorce. Greg probably made a bunch of promises that he He's going to change and do better. He probably did for a little while. But in August 2016, Faith filed for a divorce once again. 
then on September 21st, things really got crazy in their marriage. Greg lost it. In the middle of the night, he taped a plastic pipe to his exhaust of his vehicle and poisoned their two youngest children. Coy was five years old and Kaylee was four. He ran the pipe from his vehicle into the little girl's bedroom. After he was done doing this, he woke Faith up and took her to the basement where he tied her to the chair, bound her mouth with duct tape, and zip-tied her to the chair. He slashed her face with a box cutter and shot her in the foot. Faith was still alive. He then went and got Faith's children from her previous marriage, 19-year-old Chani and 17-year-old Kiara, into the basement, where he shot both of them execution-style. Since Faith was restrained to the chair, she had to watch as her kids died before her eyes. Around 1.15 in the morning on September 22nd, Greg called 911, sound familiar? He waited for police to arrive while he was in his driveway. They immediately took Faith to a hospital after having to witness the horrific scene at the house. Faith eventually recovered from her injuries. In 2017, Greg went to court and was sentenced to 45 to 100 years in prison by Judge Hathaway. He will also spend another two years for a weapons charge. He will be eligible for parole when he's 97 years old. It's a shame that he had the chance to take so many lives. In 1991, his sentence was only 15 years. With the support of the pastor, who is writing all the letters to the parole board, that has now lost all of his grandchildren because of the demon, he had a chance to kill again. Before he was sentenced, Faith got to speak. She said, I'm not happy. I'm not satisfied with the outcome. There's no punishment that meets the crime. And even torture or death would be justice. Your justice will come when you burn in hell for all eternity for murdering four innocent children, all because you're insecure as a man. Plus the other two lives you took. You are a con artist. You are a monster. You are the devil in disguise. You are now forever exposed. I thought over and over again what I would say, even though it doesn't really matter. First of all, I am not, did not, and will not suffer like you intended for me to do. What you tried didn't work. I am and was a damn great mother to all of my children. I was their mother and father. I'm the one who took out the time with each and every one of them. I taught them how to do things as well as people and my family and friends. Sometimes I dream of the night all this happened and sometimes wake up screaming and sweating, thinking I could save my children somehow. Then I realize the nightmare is actually reality and my children are really gone. And I try to find the strength to start my day. Somehow other times there are just crazy nightmares that I wake up from and fear and try to understand them. But I am told they are all linked back to this horrific experience I have had. I can't think of the last time I really rested without medication. I can still feel the zip ties around my wrist and it triggers horrible memories of that night. There's times I feel myself drifting off into thought and realize I'm not thinking of anything. I'm empty, lost, not really knowing what to do with myself, just existing day to day. I miss my children so much that words will never be able to explain. All I ever wanted to be is a mother, a wife, having a happy family, raise my children to be a productive member of society, and be happy. 
the reality I face now is this will never happen for me. Time will never heal this wound. I will always be empty. A part of me will always be missing. If the day ever comes when I do wake up, and it's not the first thing I think about, when I look in the mirror, I will always be reminded by the scars he put on my face. Cut me from my ears to my chin with a razor blade. Box cutter. The pain on the left side of my face never goes away. He cut me so deep that it is it severed multiple nerves that may never heal correctly. I, I lost so much blood I was in critical condition for days. I should have died. Some days, some days I wish I would have. He has scarred me for my life. My whole family is devastated emotionally by what has happened. But it has been extremely been hard on my parents. They love their grandchildren with all their hearts. Most days my mother has a hard time getting out of bed and has been in the hospital a few times, but my father is taking it the hardest. He is not the same person he once was. The stress has taken a toll on his health. I honestly don't know where to go from here. I'm numb. There's a hole in my heart and soul that can never be repaired. The loss to me is so big that I will never truly recover for the rest of my life. I will forever be in pain and heartbreak. This wound will never heal. Rest in peace to all the victims of this monster. I hope he rots in jail for the rest of his life. And then they put him underneath the jail after his death. Thanks so much for listening to this episode. Okay, and then a couple notes from that episode. I just wanted to say domestic violence is real. If you or a loved one has experienced domestic violence, please call the domestic violence hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE or you could text START to 88788. It's not easy to identify domestic violence at first. Abuse often starts subtly and gets worse over time. The signs of domestic violence are calls you names, insults puts you down, prevents or discourages you from going to work or school, seeing family or friends, tries to control how you spend money, where you go, what medicine you take, or what you wear. Acts jealous or possessively constantly accuses you of being unfaithful. Gets angry when drinking alcohol or using drugs. Threatens you with violence or a weapon. Hits, kicks, slaps, chokes, or otherwise hurts you or your children or your pets. Forces you to have sex or engage in sexual acts against your will blames you for his or her violent behavior or tells you that you deserve it. Okay, now, what do you what did you think of that case, Stacey? Everybody finds God once they go to jail. You don't know God before it takes it takes jail to give you people God and you sick in the head. First and foremost, anybody that needs to find God in jail, prison, whatever the, the case is, if you already don't have God, then you're a disturbing person. Some people just don't understand the logic of life. Like I don't, I don't understand. Like for that pastor, he should feel some type of way. Like he's speaking about a person the man should never been let go when he did when he did shit the first time. But I mean, just as you gotta do better. 
yeah, it's just a shame all them babies had to lose their lives and his unborn child and his first wife too. Okay, my next case is about David Carter Sr. On September 28, 2018, David Carter Sr. and his girlfriend Tammy Williams went to a football game. David Carter was supposed to get his son DJ, who was supposed to stay with his father on Sunday. But on September 30th, that Sunday, both DJ and his mother, Sonia Connor, received a text message that was sent from Dave Carter's phone that he was really sick and was not able to spend time with DJ. Later on that Sunday, DJ went to his dad's house. He wanted to pick up some of his belongings when he saw his dad's girlfriend Tammy taking out the trash. DJ said Tammy was acting really strange that day when she had seen him. She ran to the apartment door like ran. When I got to my dad's house, the door was locked. You'd have thought since she saw me, she'd had left it unlocked, but I had a key. The Carter family received a call on October 2nd, 2018 from David's friend and co-worker Roger Davis. He had told them that David had not been to work for three days, which was not usual for David. After hearing this, David's family rushed to his apartment in Melvindale, Michigan. When they went into his apartment and began looking around, they went to his bedroom. That's when they saw a bloodstained mattress in what seemed to be bullet holes on the door to the closet. On October 2nd, 2018, he was declared a missing person. Less than a day after they discovered all of this in his apartment, David's disappearance became a homicide investigation after his lifeless body was discovered by Ohio Department of Transportation. They discovered the lower torso of an adult man and identified it as David Carter Sr. Over a 16-day span, David's body parts would be found on I-75 Highway in Ohio in multiple locations. On Friday, October 5th, Tammy Williams was arrested as a prime suspect in David's death. But three days later, they had to release her because of lack of evidence, so they could not charge her. Williams is now wanted by the U.S. Marshals for mutilation, dismemberment of a dead body, tampering with evidence, and felony firearm. A reward for $10,000 is available for any information leading to arrest. She may have altered her appearance and may be going under a alias. She is 5 feet 5 inches and weighs around 190 pounds. She also has several notable tattoos. After David's death, there were several string of sightings of Williams in the weeks after. Tammy has been spotted in Ann Arbor, Michigan on October 16, 2018. She was withdrawing cash from an ATM and had dinner at a restaurant. She is believed to have taken a train to Chicago, then another to Penn Station, New York City. There is evidence that she checked into the Neptune Hotel using her own name, only staying one night. She was seen leaving this hotel on October 18th and has not been seen since. If you have any information on David Carter Sr.'s death or Tammy Williams' whereabouts, you can send a tip to unsolved.com slash tips. If you would like more information on this case, it was aired on episode 3 of Netflix Unsolved Unsolved Murders. And that is the case of David Carter Sr. What do you think about that one, babe? 
happens over the course of Well, now I got something to lighten it all up. This is I'm going to tell you about some very stupid bank robbers. <laughs> a man who targeted four banks, one in East, one in East Point, Rose Point Woods, Harper Woods, and Redford, was identified because he wrote a demano on his own paycheck stub and left it with a teller after the robbery. A criminal complaint was unsealed on Friday, March 24th, and accuses Colin Carl, Carl Love Jr., 23, and Hill, 21, of being involved in three bank robbers in an attempted bank robbery in Metro Detroit. On February 4th, the Community Choice Credit Union at 25447 Five Mile Road in Redford was robbed at 12.27 p.m. Love walked in the bank, handed the teller a note that said, I want $20,000, all $100 bills, no die packs, no tracking devices, or funny business. I have a gun and I will shoot somebody. PSA, give me this check back when done. He was wearing a yellow construction vest, a face covering, blue pants, and tan boots without laces. The teller walked into the back to get the money, told the manager about the robbery. The manager called the police while the teller returned to give $4,000 to Love. Love fled on foot. Redford Police Department interviewed the teller and manager and learned, learned Love left a demand note. The note was written on a paycheck stub that tracked back to a temp agency in Troy. The agency told office officials that Love was the owner of the account to which the check belonged to. Love matched the physical description of the bank robber. The temp agency also provided Love's cell phone number, which authorities traced to cash app accounts. Love had been denied the purchase of a firearm on the same day as a Redford Township bank robbery. He went to the gun store around 6 p.m. February 4th and around 1 p.m. February 6th, but was not allowed to buy a gun. Love had an injunctive order against him for a report of domestic violence as of December 2022. Video footage from the gun store showed Love entering without a mask. His physical appearance matched that of the Community Choice Credit Union robbery. When he robbed the Christian Financial Credit Union at 19770 Harper Avenue, he was wearing the same thing as he wore in Redford robbery. He also passed the teller a note on, you guessed it, a paycheck, a, paycheck, a paycheck stub. This was from a temp agency that was no longer in business, and some information on it was masked out. The FBI submitted the check to Michigan State Police Lab. Love's index finger was found on it. Love tried to rob the East Point same way, but he handed the teller a receipt this time. The teller told Love that they were going to get the money, but the never returned. Love left the bank on foot. On March 3rd, the FBI were tracking Love's cell phone when they noticed a break from its normal pattern. Love was traveling to St. Clair Shores. Gross Point Woods issued a bank robbery alert for 5th 3rd Bank on Mac Avenue. The bank robber had gotten into an older Monte Carlo and left the area. They chased the car but called off the chase due to speed. Officer went to Love's home on Rosemary Street in Detroit to see if the Monte Carlo would return to this address. A few moments later, a call from an off-duty police officer who had seen two men laughing and talking loudly about getting away from authorities. He also seen one man put a license plate down his pants while walking down the street. 
When police showed up, both men ran away, but officers caught up to them and placed them under investigative de- detention. The first man was identified as Hill, and the second was Love. Hill had a gun, cash, and a bank hand from Fifth Third Bank. They found the license plate down his pants. Love had a gun, $9,000 in cash, and a cell phone authorities were tracking. Both men were arrested. Both men are being charged with bank robbery and conspiracy to commit bank robbery. So what do you think of that one? That ain't the stupidest shit I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> I told you that one was like enough. Some stupid stuff in my life, but Jesus Christ, really? <laughs> really, you're gonna, you're gonna go rob it? I don't care what it is. Where are you gonna rob? So you're gonna give them your actual pay stuff? You're gonna, come on. <laughs> really like of all things you could have did i mean you might as well just wrote it on your id or your social security card like here you go birth certificate wow. and then at the end they both of them are walking past a police officer in a car like, laughing about it and you're gonna put a license plate down your pants come on now they're gonna see you that a license plate come on now <laughs> Jesus Christ. okay now <laughs> now i'm going to turn it over to you on a couple of rap cases. Okay, so this story is going to be about the rapper MC Breed from Flint, Michigan, for those who don't know. MC Breed was an American rapper born as Eric Tyrone Breed. was born on June 12, 1971 in Flint, Michigan. He's best known for his single, and the Future on Your Frontin', which peaked at number 66 on the Billboard's Hot 100. And gotta get mine featuring Tupac that made it into a number six on the hop rap singles. Reed launched his career in Detroit hip hop scene and was one of the first nationally successful rappers to come out of this scene. Breed had his legal issues on May 11, 2006. Breed was sentenced to one year in prison for violation of probation for failure to pay $200,000 in child support. Then on April 3rd, 2008, he was arrested in Flint, Michigan, following a store autograph signing session on warrants about another 220000 in unpaid child support. While Bree was preparing to release a DVD documentary about his life titled Where's MC Bree? He was also working on a new album titled The Original Bree. But on September 5th, 2008, Breed was hospitalized and placed on life support as he collapsed due to kidney failure. During a game of pickup basketball, Breed stated that the new album he was working on was half finished. On September 2008, when he was released from the hospital after being on life support for two days, on November on November 22nd, 2008, he died in his sleep while at a friend's home in Ypsilanti, Michigan. Bree had recorded his last song two days before his death 
called Every Day. Every Day I Want It. Featuring Outlaws. Rest in peace, MC Bree. Now, was he was the one that sang Uchi Kuchi La La La? Or is that someone else? That's somebody else. MC <laughs> Bree was one of the people that. That that was a part and affiliated with the Dayton family. Oh, okay. Okay, so here's a story about another Detroit rapper that a lot of people was unfamiliar with, or basically everybody. It's Bugs of D12. We talk about the murder of Proof leader of the group detail so i felt that i need to do a case on bugs of d12 who was also murdered bugs aka carnell paul pitts was born on january 5th 1977 in detroit he grew up without his father who left him and the rest of his family at an early age bugs became a member of d12 in 1996 and introduced his friend swift who at the time was a member of the group The Rebels? On May 21st, 1999, Bugs went to a picnic before a show in Detroit. At the picnic, an altercation would occur when a man was with spray Bugs' friend, Bugs' friend's cousin, with a water gun, and she took offense. The argument turned into a fist fight where Bugs intervened and his friend on his behalf. A friend of the man that was going through the altercation.